This morning, we will be continuing in 1 Corinthians, so please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I uh, warned y'all at the beginning of this study to be wearing your seatbelt, and this morning is going to be the test on whether or not you are wearing your seatbelt, because we're going to pump the brakes and slow down and uh, start going through chapter 12, 13, and 14 much more slowly than we've been doing a flyover of this book. So this morning, we're just going to be looking at three verses together, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But before we even jump into that, allow me to open up our time in prayer. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, the privilege it is to be able to have this time now to dig into it together. And we just ask that you'd give us grace to understand what you'd have for us in it this morning and help us all to be seeking to consider how these things apply to our lives and just give us wisdom in that, not just in the knowing of these things, but in the doing of these things. We don't want to be those that look at your word and observe cool things and then at once go away and forget what we saw and fail to live in accordance with it. So help us, Lord, in that to make application of these things and to just live rightly in light of what your word has given us. So thank you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, this section that we're getting ready to get into, provides the most thorough discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The most thorough discussion. Romans 12, 6 through 8, Ephesians 4, uh, 11, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 also speak about spiritual gifts, but those passages do so in less detail. So we're getting into a section that is loaded with information about the spiritual gifts. This passage provides highly practical information about how believers are to relate to one another within the church, particularly in light of the varied nature of spiritual giftedness. So how are we supposed to relate to one another in the church when the gifts are such a variety given to believers? A quote from the Bible Knowledge Background Commentary. While the church, this is the church in Corinth, has given evidence of possessing the Spirit of God, they lack understanding of what that means. So you look at the church in Corinth and you look at their gifts. It was clear that they had spiritual gifts, but they were failing to understand the implications of those gifts, the applications of those gifts, how to use the gifts that had been given. And this quote from Christostom, commenting on this passage, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, writing in the late 300s, which is amazing to think, this is, this is written in the late 300s right here, this comment. He says of this passage of scripture, this whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. Further on, he says, immediately after conversion, one straightaway spoke in the Persian language, another in the Roman language, another in the Indian language, another in some other such tongue, and this made manifest to them that were without, that it is the Spirit in the very person speaking. As the apostles themselves had received this sign first, so also the faithful, that is, the believers, went on receiving it. I mean, the gift of tongues. Yet not this only, but also many others, inasmuch as many used even to raise the dead and to cast out devils and to perform many other such wonders, and they had gifts too, some less and some more." I think that's a really interesting quote to look at from early church history that helps clarify just as we approach this text, why as we look at it, some of these things are like, man, that seems, that seems hard to interpret, hard to understand. 
Well, that's the same thing that was being said as early as the 300s was, yeah, this is a challenging and rather obscure passage in some ways because it speaks to things that were very much happening in the days of the apostles, but some of which are not happening today. So our outline for this morning, as we look at these first three verses, we're going to see the importance of understanding spiritual gifts, the potential to misunderstand spiritual gifts, and the fundamental uniqueness of spiritual gifts. And when we talk about spiritual gifts, keep the capital S in front of that spiritual. This is that which comes from the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, God. This is not talking about, um, we use this term a lot today about someone being gifted. Oh, he's just a really gifted singer. He's just a really gifted blank. You fill in the blank. And we can get confused when we're talking about a believer that's been born again. They receive spiritual gifting. That is gifting from the Holy Spirit. So that's going to be what we're zooming in on today. So read with me. We're going to read the first three verses and uh, follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This first verse, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul's desire is for the knowledge of the Corinthian believers to catch up, as it were, with their giftedness. They were tremendously gifted, but their knowledge and their understanding hadn't caught up with that. This is, I think as we think about the spiritual gifts, like for those of you that are mechanically minded and work a lot with cars or tools and stuff, this is going to resonate. For those that don't, you'll still be able to track with me here. But it's a bit like this church had received, or it's like a mechanic that just received a a toolbox full of tools, but they didn't know how to use them. They were using them wrongly. They They were beating on things with wrenches. They were trying to unscrew things with hammers. Yes, they had been given these tools, but the evidence in the church was that they were using these tools all sorts of wrongly. They were using them to puff up themselves and say, well, I have this gift, so therefore this. And it ended up doing the same way that if you have a mechanic that doesn't know what his tools do, um, it would kind of do a number on your car. In the same way, this church that had these gifts but didn't know how to use them rightly, it was doing a number on the church. It was hurting the church and actually to their detriment and causing harm and it was producing pride and arrogance and boastfulness instead of humility and edification and encouragement. So all sorts of things were mixed up as a result of this. And some had even, rather than use the tools given, they they had basically taken like, oh, I have this tool, so I'm going to frame it and hang it on the wall and it's my favorite tool and look at this gift that I have, rather than how can I use this to better those around me. And that leads to the second point there. Gifting without instruction and understanding leads to ineffectiveness, pride, and dysfunction. Gifting without instruction and understanding leads to ineffectiveness, pride, and dysfunction. Knowledge of things pertaining to the Holy Spirit matters. It matters. Paul starts out with saying, I do not want you to be uninformed. God wants us to know how to use the gifts that he has given his church. They were a church that was exceptionally gifted, but 
This is a quote from John Owen. The best of God's gifts may be abused by the sinful desires of men, and the purest water may be tainted by the earthen vessels whereinto it is poured. I love that illustration. Yeah, there's nothing deficient about the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that he messed up in this process. But in the same way that pure water can be tainted by the vessel into which it's poured, here is what's essentially happened in Corinth. God's gifts have been poured out on this church, but then they've taken it by their own desires, by their own lusts, sinful desires, twisted these things to be something less than beneficial to the church. So just reflecting on some implications about this first point, that understanding these things matters, because understanding these gifts is so important, we should take seriously the study of this passage. Our study in chapters 12 through 14 matters because it matters to God. We should take it seriously. Also, God cares how we use the gifts that he gives us, which means for each of us, as believers, should care. And it's not up to us to decide how we use our giftedness. We don't get to decide in the same way the mechanic doesn't get to decide, well, I think this, uh, this wrench should really be used as a screwdriver. That's obviously silly as we think of it that way, but the purpose for which that gift was given matters, and that's how we're supposed to be exercising our gifts. So the importance of understanding spiritual gifts, and then verse two, or yeah, verse two, the potential to misunderstand spiritual gifts. Look with me at verse two. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So Paul sets up a contrast here. What they were currently experiencing and what they had experienced in the past. So you were once led a certain way. You're familiar with that. but This is different. The Corinthians knew what it was like to be, quote-unquote, led by something. They were very, very familiar with what it was like to be led by something. And their pagan background factored into their current misunderstanding of spiritual things. A quote from Robert Thomas, the Corinthian Christians had known what it was to be moved by forces outside themselves, demonic forces. They were familiar with these things. These weren't new things for them. And I just want to recommend that book, actually, Robert Thomas. As we dig into this, um, this section, we're going to slow down a little bit, but there's still going to be a number of you that are going to still have questions and want to dig in even more. I recommend this as a tremendously helpful starting point. It's called Understanding Spiritual Gifts by Robert Thomas. It's a book dedicated to working through these three chapters, and it has loads of appendices, too. So I guess I'll, I'll hold up. This is... This part is the appendices. This part's the book. So if you want to feel really good about finishing a nice big book, grab this one, and then you'll be able to finish it, and then... Read the appendices later if you want. So anyways, highly recommend that book. Worth having if this is an area where as we're going through it and a few weeks into this, you're like, man, I still have questions. I'd want to just slow down and dig through this on my own time. That's a super helpful resource. Just wanted to plug that. So they knew what it was like to be led by something. Many in the church would have had experiences of seeing or participating in frenzied, idolatrous worship experiences that were driven by emotional, mystical, and even spiritual forces. That's the background of those in Corinth. If you remember our first week studying Corinth and we, we plopped down right into city center and we looked around and just on every corner is another pagan temple, pagan temple, pagan temple, pagan temple. Those Christians in Corinth were surrounded by idolatry, by demon worship, and by the worship practices associated with those things. And Paul acknowledges this from the outset of this section because he's going to end up drawing a sharp contrast between what that was like and what it's like to be filled with the Spirit, to have spiritual gifts, 
and to be obeying him and yielded to his work in our lives. So there's a sharp contrast between those things. And even in verse 2, he highlights there's a difference between being led in a pagan context, led to mute idols, versus being led by the Spirit. But there is a danger, and that's why he comments on it here, the, the danger of dragging pagan mysticism into Christian worship. He comments on this because this is a danger to drag pagan mysticism into Christian worship. Because of their idolatrous background that is being misled toward mute idols, paired with their hyper-individualism that we've already seen that says, well, I can do whatever I want as long as it's, it's lawful for me so I can do it, that doesn't actually care about the edification of others, these two things paired together and left them susceptible. The Corinthian church was, was susceptible to bringing their pre-conversion and pagan experiences into their understanding of the Spirit. They would take their understanding of what that pagan experience was like and try to read that into what the gifts of the Holy Spirit entailed. So they'd misunderstand the Spirit as a result. But spiritual experience, and that is true capital S spiritual experience, must never be separated from the truth. The Holy Spirit is called in John the Spirit of Truth. So spiritual experience must never be separated from the truth. True Christian experience is the impression that the truth leaves on our heart and mind. I love this. The way that uh, Alexander, uh, Archibald Alexander articulates this. In uh, 1840s is when he wrote this, responding to issues of his own day that are not entirely different from our own. He says this, There are two kinds of religious knowledge, which though intimately connected as cause and effect, may nevertheless be distinguished. So these two types of, he calls it religious knowledge. These are, the one, the knowledge of the truth as it is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and the impression which that truth makes on the human mind when rightly apprehended. The first may be compared to the inscription or image on a seal, the other to the impression made by the seal on the wax. When the impression is clearly and distinctly made, we can understand by observing it the true inscription on the seal more clearly than by a direct view of the seal itself. Thus it is found that nothing tends more to confirm and clarify the truths contained in the word than an inward experience of their efficacy on the heart. I love the way that's articulated. I love that illustration that the objective truth of God's word, that's, that's unchanging, but then our experience of it is as that truth is pressed into our lives and has an impact on our hearts, we feel that truth in a way that's different than merely looking at words on a page. So spiritual experience must never be separated from the truth. Another quote commenting on the danger of mysticism, this is from the early 1900s, the danger of mysticism lies in the occupation of the soul with what is thought to be fellowship with the exalted Christ. So the soul thinks like, oh, I'm just, I'm communing with Christ on high, thought to be fellowship with the exalted Christ and letting the historic Jesus fall into the background. Like, ah, no, I don't, I don't need to read the gospels. I'm just gonna have communion with Christ. Somehow separating Christ's personhood from his nature and, and who he truly is. So, but this will not happen if we honor and make prominent the Holy Spirit and allow him to do his work. He will witness to the redemptive, mediatorial work of Christ in whom alone salvation is made possible. 
Redemption is by the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and truth is only embodied in the personal Christ. Faith, to be real, must have a foundation, and it inevitably fails if it is not constantly based on historic fact. The Holy Spirit is not a vague, impersonal influence or principle, but a divine, indwelling person who glorifies Christ as Redeemer, life, and Lord. So what are some implications of this? As we think about what it means that they were at one point led by pagan idols, mute idols, we should recognize as we enter this discussion on spiritual gifts, we should recognize that there is a potential to misunderstand and to confuse spiritual gifts with something that is far from spirit-given. There's the potential to take something that you, you might, someone might truly think this is from the Spirit, but based on background, based on experience, based on any number of things, might ultimately deeply misinterpret that as being from the Spirit when it's not. So we must not be surprised when we encounter genuine Christians who are deeply confused about things related to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual realm as a whole. More than we probably realize, when we think about the Holy Spirit, often we're not actually deriving our understanding of the Holy Spirit from God's Word. Often we're importing our understanding of what the spiritual realm is like, different experiences we've had, different things we've seen, different ways things are portrayed on movies and in books that we read. So often we come to what God's Word says about the Holy Spirit with baggage brought into it. And that's what the Corinthians were doing in chapter two, or in verse 2 that's mentioned is, yeah, they were at one point led by, by spiritual forces. But they need to kind of get that out of their mind as they're renewed by the truth of God's word. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter Christians that are confused about these things. And also, we must cultivate, in light of this, we must cultivate a healthy distrust for our own hearts, knowing our ability to be deceived and led astray by things other than the Holy Spirit. Perhaps none of us were at one point idol worshipers, but we all know what it's like to be carried away by another desire other than a desire for the Lord. So we have to realize that our own hearts are fickle, they're tending towards other things. So as we approach this section, we have to realize we don't want to just be going off of what our hearts say when we think about the Holy Spirit and who God says he is in his word. So verse 3 as we get on here, actually, I'll, I'll pause before we go on to verse 3. Are there any questions so far? We're just kind of hitting these couple verses, and then we're going to dig into and work on some stuff together. But any questions on these first two verses before we get into verse 3? Yes? Mysticism, man, a concise definition of mysticism. That is a great question. Um, basically, openness and yielded to communion with the spiritual, you could say, but usually it's in more of an abstract sense. So I'm being, I'm carried away by something that is um, I want to say spiritualism, but it's more of like an abstract spiritualism, if that makes sense. It's, it's a really v- broad term, so it's not like it can't be like mysticism is like this religion, because mysticism pops up in so many different religions. Does that answer it slightly? It is a rather broad term, so it's kind of hard to define. Good question. Yeah, so when uh, Thomas is writing there, this is Griffith Thomas, not Robert Thomas, for the record. This is referring to the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, the Jesus that actually lived and walked on earth, and recognizing those are the same Jesus. Like, the Jesus of the Bible is the same as the Jesus in heaven. But there was, especially at the end of the 1800s, 
a really strong push to kind of separate those two. Like, yeah, there's like, there's like the historic Jesus, but like, can we really know what he was like? But then there's this exalted Christ that works in different ways throughout time. And it was just a, I mean, at that work, it's just guesswork because you're, you're not going off of what God's word says. So you're, you basically have a made up Jesus at that point. So Griffith is, uh, Griffith Thomas is basically kind of trying to pull those things back together and say, no, historic Jesus and exalted Christ, those are the same person. Does that clarify it? Okay. Other questions? All right, feel free to stop me as we're going and as we roll into verse 3. On the fundamental uniqueness of spiritual gifts. It says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And this is not talking about a physical ability to mouth words. We're going to get into that in a second. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Spirit are categorically and entirely different from the leading, quote-unquote, that they experienced in paganism. They cannot even be compared. The first section of this, no one can say Jesus is accursed by the Spirit or in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God never originates or produces error, blasphemy, or heresy. The Holy Spirit never produces error, blasphemy, or heresy. Some pretty horrible things, and maybe you can even reflect on some that you've personally experienced, some, some pretty horrible things have been attributed to the Holy Spirit. Today, in, in seasons past, there are false teachers that claim to have a direct line of communication with the Holy Spirit, and then they manipulate people based on that. Well, like, the Holy Spirit told me this, and the Holy Spirit told me that if you give me this money, you'll be healed. There's been terrible abuses of so many different sorts because someone gave the impression that they have had a message from God. So many cults have started this way. In some contexts, you might even be accused of being called anti-Holy Spirit. You might be accused of that if you question the true origin of someone's so-called spirit-brought message. But if a sentence starts with, I just heard the Holy Spirit tell me, dot, dot, dot. Starting a sentence that way is not a pass to then spout error without questioning someone. It's not, it doesn't get you off the hook from like, well, you just said something really wrong, but I guess the Holy Spirit told you to, so I guess I can't evaluate that. This text says to the contrary, just because someone says they're speaking in or by with the Holy Spirit, what they say after that matters a whole lot. So if they say Jesus is accursed, you know it's not coming from the Holy Spirit, no matter what they claim. In its most extreme form, someone could conceivably speak against Christ himself, but claim to be speaking in the Holy Spirit. That was happening here. Paul says that such an error is not from the Holy Spirit. No one who's speaking in the Holy Spirit curses Christ. Now this is, contextually, I wrestled with this a lot. Commentators are all over the place on whether or not this is a hypothetical, hypothetically someone could say Jesus is cursed, no, of course not, or maybe this was an actual thing that was happening in Corinth, like there was someone claiming to be a prophet speaking and saying Jesus is accursed. Others were saying this is related to proto-Gnosticism, all over the map on whether or not this was actually happening in Corinth or not. But the point, and the fact of the matter remains, that the main point is Someone is not going to say that by the Holy Spirit. 
factual error, blasphemy, heresy that's not going to be sourced from the God who is truth. So apparently there were those in the midst, maybe speaking in the Spirit of God, who would claim these things. Interestingly, this phrase, accursed, Jesus is accursed, was used especially among Jews, and it was to designate, this is a quote from Charles Hodge, to designate a person or thing devoted to destruction, and then with the necessary idea of divine displeasure, something devoted to destruction as accursed. Hence, to say that Jesus is anathema, to say that Jesus is accursed, is to say that he was a malefactor, one justly condemned to death. So basically, this is saying, to say Jesus is accursed is to side with the Jews that said, crucify him, crucify him, he is anathema. So that's what's meant by that quote. And a quote from David Farnell, genuine New Testament prophets who were in the prophetic state were guarded from erroneous revelatory statements because of the intimate ministry of the spirit of prophecy. We'll unpack that a little bit as we get into chapter 14 and talk about the gift of prophecy, what it was, and how it was used, and how it was checked. But a big thing to realize is, just as you're reading the the Bible, don't put a sharp contrast between prophecy in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament. There's a a continuity there that none of the apostles commented on there being a, a great distinction between that sort of prophecy. So those speaking on behalf of God, speaking from God, were speaking in accordance with his nature, which is truly, they were speaking in a way that was guarded from error. So on the the one side, the Holy Spirit of God does not originate error, heresy, blasphemy. The flip side of that, second point, the Holy Spirit of God originates saving faith in Jesus Christ and produces the profession that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Think about this. As you think about spiritual gifts, What is the first and most profound result of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life? What is the most amazing gift of the Holy Spirit you could receive? And if you've jumped into one of the gift lists on that and think, well, maybe the gift of helps or the gift of service or the gift of... um, If you've jumped into that, you've already jumped over something that's even more significant, more important, and that's why Paul starts here. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in, or again, by the Holy Spirit. For a person to savingly embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord is the most profound gift of the Spirit given to the believer. Real gifts of the Spirit have an unmistakable earmark, a willing acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord with conviction of mind and devotion of soul. This ability is a heart-level transformation not the ability to make certain sounds come from your mouth. It's the truth that's believed and embraced in the heart. I I have previously misread this verse to mean like actually being able to say those words, but it's not talking about some sort of magic formula that you have to say to be saved. If that was the case, then you'd need to go back and say it in Greek because that was how Paul wrote it. That's not the point. The point isn't the ability to mouth syllables. The point is to be able to believe something. And even specifically what's being believed here, this quote from Gordon Fee, he says, the significance of this is that in Paul's and the Corinthians' Bible, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, the anarthurus kurios, so pause there. Does anyone know what anarthurus kurios means? Great, we'll explain it. Kurios, that's the Greek word meaning Lord, and anarthurus means without the article. 
the. So when we have the article, it's like the. We have in English the or a. It's that little word that distinguishes something from what follows. In Greek, you could either have the article or not have the article in front of the word kurios, Lord. And it meant different things whether or not you had the article or didn't have the article. Plenty of places in our New Testaments that have the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, it doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. It says Jesus is, and we supply, or we, we don't supply, sorry, correctly. Jesus is Lord, period. And that is a reference to, for anyone that was hearing that, that is a reference to the way the translators of the Old Testament translated the Old Testament into Greek. So we're going, we're going like three languages here. We're in English, we're going back to Greek, and then bouncing back to Hebrew. But in the Old Testament Hebrew, where we read in our Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, where it's all caps, L-O-R-D, that is the translation of Yahweh. So the way that the translators of the Old Testament into Greek, which did that about like 200, 300 years before Christ, the way that they translated Yahweh was to use the word kurios, which means Lord. But when they wanted to establish that we're talking about, <laughs> it gets really confusing, because in the Old Testament you have Yahweh and you also have Adonai. Adonai means like Lord, like a, a ruler, a, a king. So where you have capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and you have Adonai, which means our idea of Lord, you end up translating both of those words the same way. So you have in your New Testament, you're carrying around, you have Lord and Lord, but two different words that's being referred to. So the way that the New Testament writers would understand this, the New Testament audience would understand this, is whether or not there was that little the in front of it. And where there wasn't the the, this is talking about Yahweh. So this isn't just an expression that says Jesus is master, Jesus is king, Jesus is um, sovereign. It's not just that, although that would certainly be something that the Holy Spirit produces. It's moreover the confession that Jesus Christ is one in the same with the God of the Old Testament. It's saying Jesus is God. This is a massive claim. So to continue with a quote from Gordon Fee, this Anartheris Kurios was used almost exclusively as a way of rendering the tetragrammaton, which is that word Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. Such an affirmation meant absolute allegiance to Jesus as one's deity and thus set believers apart from both Jews, for whom such a confession was blasphemy, and from pagans, especially those in the cults whose deities were called lords. So this is a clear and a massive statement that the Holy Spirit enables the believer to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, who came, took on flesh, died for our sins, is God incarnate. That is a massive claim, and it's a claim that Scripture says is enabled by, a belief that's enabled by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, which is amazing. I want to look at two verses together. Romans 10.9, you can turn with me there. And while you're turning there, you can also look to uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So Romans 10, 9. And this is one that many of you will be familiar with, starting in verse 8. But what it, does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's one place in the New Testament that, that comes up, and then Philippians 2, 9 through 11, which says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Magnificent texts that point to just a bedrock reality of our faith. Paul did not commence his discussion of spiritual gifts without first, without first establishing the foundational and trans, uh, foundational transformation and ability that the Spirit brings believers. Far from being disregarded as some accursed Jewish fanatic, the Spirit of God enables a person to perceive and confess that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. If you're here today and you have embraced Jesus Christ as all he said he was, as the Lord, as your Savior, and you've believed in him to be who he said he is in his word, then you can give thanks to God for the magnificent work that the Holy Spirit has done in your heart. It's a, it should produce praise. Some implications of this, just because someone might claim to be speaking something from the Holy Spirit is in no way diminishes the need to evaluate. This, this verse, the fact that someone can say something wrong but claim to be speaking in the Holy Spirit, just because someone says they're speaking from the Spirit doesn't mean you then drop your guard and say, well, I don't need to discern what's being said here. No, it, it does mean you still need to discern and evaluate the objective content of the statement. Not all that is attributed to the Holy Spirit is actually from him. Anything from minor error to extreme heresy have been attributed to the Holy Spirit in the past. And also, because the confession that Jesus is Lord is common to all Christians, all Christians believe that, claim that, proclaim that, we should recognize that even as different people have different gifts, we all have different functions and ways that we serve the body, we should recognize that Ultimately, we have the most important thing in common, which is that we recognize Jesus Christ to be God. So before we kind of do an overview of the next section, are there any questions or things to clarify just from, from that verse or other stuff you thought about in verses 1 and 2? Yeah. Great question, and we'll definitely we'll unpack that more as we get into the category of prophecy and start to talk through what that specifically looks like. Um, trying to think of a way to do a short answer on that. If the content itself is not new revelation, like it just perfectly aligns with Scripture, then be like, wow, what you just said, that, that reminds me of this passage of Scripture, which is from the Lord. And just look, look at the passage that's right there that you can both objectively look at. Um, and I think the also a big thing that we have to realize as Christians who are sensitive to the to the, the Spirit's work in our lives of sanctifying us, and the redemption of the whole person. Like, it's not just one aspect of us that's been redeemed by Christ. Like, he redeems all of us, which means our thoughts, our affections, our desires are being changed and conformed into the image of Christ, which means more and more we'll think things that are good things to do. 
And we'll think things like, man, I should really go talk to that person. And I noticed that person over there, I should just go talk to him. And you go talk to him. Well, was that me doing a good thing as a Christian? Or should I say, well, because I saw that person, I thought I should go talk to that person. That must have been the Spirit telling me to go talk to that person. And I think so often we just blur those categories, and I think it really muddies the waters to say, the Spirit told me to blank, when really it's like, I have a feeling that I should do this thing. Just, I think, embrace it as that. I have, a, I have a feeling that I should do this thing. Maybe that feeling is from the Lord, but to say, God told me to say blank, and then to fill in the blank with something, is to be claiming to be producing ongoing revelation, which should be as binding as Scripture. If you're, if you're prophesying at that point, you're saying, this is from the Lord. Whatever follows, if it's something that God told me that you need to go to South Africa. Okay, well, if that's truly from the Lord, then there's no disobeying that. That's, that's special and direct revelation. So we'll unpack that a little bit as we get to, to prophecy. But I think the short answer is to realize that uh, so often we end up attributing things to the Holy Spirit that are really just our redeemed humanity Say, prompting us to think through things. So that's, that's God providentially leading, like, likely, but I, th- I think often it's attributed to his voice, which is more subjectively, um, more coming from our own subjective understandings. Good question. Does that answer it slightly? Okay. I hope to unpack that a lot more when we get into chapter 14. So. Any other questions? All right. So we're going to do a little bit of looking ahead and at tables, you'll work through this, at, at tables slash individually. So this is going to be kind of, kind of talk about it, kind of submit it on your own. Um, but we're going to be looking through, just surveying together chapters 12 through 14. You're going to read it as tables, just a few verses, probably five minutes or so to read. And then uh, start just going through and listing questions. And there's a QR code to scan to submit those questions. Something that is so important is the ability to study God's Word deeply, and that is prompted greatly by the ability to ask good questions. So we're going to take about probably 15 minutes or so, 10-15 minutes, just digging into these questions from this passage together. So read the passage as tables, and then start digging through questions. I'm actually going to project up on the screen a little pie chart of where the, where the chapters are coming from, so that you can kind of see, like, wow, everyone's asking chapters on this, questions on this chapter. I should ask questions on this chapter instead. So I'll project that once you guys get going and start working through those questions. But again, just scan that QR code. Everyone have it on your phones and just start rattling off as many questions as we can. That's going to help make sure this study together is specific in helping the questions that we have. So uh, go for that now. Read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 14. And I already read the first three verses for you, so you can start in uh, verse 4.